O Lord, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word abides forever. So Lord, our lives, we flourish, we blossom, and yet soon our days pass away. May we cling to that which is not temporary, which will not fade, you and your word. And as we hear it this morning, would you encourage, exhort, and may you be exalted. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, another year, another snow and ice storm in North Texas. It seems a regular occurrence now that come winter, at least one Wednesday night or Sunday morning, Keith and I will be texting back and forth, do we call it now, do we wait? Sometimes the forecast gets it right, sometimes they don't, and it gets canceled. You know, we can look at our weather app and see it coming. It's seven days away, we might get snow. It's six days away, now it might be ice. Five, it gets closer and closer, and then as it keeps there, you all know what happens a day or two before. Everyone goes to the grocery store. Everyone fills up their houses, hunkers down, because now we're going to have a few days at home, and we need all the food we can get. And yet sometimes we don't prepare, and so we have to bundle up, go scrape the ice from our vehicles, drive carefully to the store, and buy what we need. You know, we endure those minor annoyances, the scraping of the ice, the slower driving, because there's something better out there. And yet sometimes in life, it's not minor annoyances, but major sufferings that we choose to endure because we know something better will come from it. Paul writes about such a situation here in these verses. He's writing from a Roman prison, but he doesn't whine, moan, or complain about his chains. He does not lose heart, and he encourages them not to lose heart because he suffers since he knows there is something better that they need. Let's see how Paul says this by reading Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me, Though I am the very least of all the saints, the grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So the emphasis of this passage is that knowing God's plan in Christ (coughs) shines light on our sufferings. Knowing God's plan in Christ shines light on our sufferings. But before we dive into that, it might be helpful to briefly remind us where we are in Ephesians. 
You may remember when he opened his letter, the first 14 verses of the letter, Paul is giving thanks to God for all the wonderful blessings we have in Christ. We are chosen, we're adopted, we're forgiven, we're destined to an eternal, eternal inheritance. And then he turned to say how he would pray for them and pray that they would have wisdom, that they would have hope, that they would know the power that we have in Christ. He then turned in chapter 2 to talk about how though we were dead in our sins, God by his grace made us alive. And he then expounded on that, not just we're Gentiles, sorry, not just Jews, but also Gentiles were made alive. Because as Christ reconciled not only to God, but Christ can bring reconciliation to one another. And that's led now to chapter 3, where he's talking about his specific ministry to the apostles. And he's wrapping up his ministry as he began. You may notice chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner. And now he's going back to that idea that he's a prisoner, but he's letting them know that, look, knowing God's plan in Christ, it shines light on my sufferings. And he's letting them know, look, God has an eternal plan. And that now leads to boldness before God, and thus we can have joy in our suffering. That'll be our outline if you have a bulletin. God's eternal plan, boldness before God, and joy in suffering. But this all begins in verse 11 with Paul declaring that God has an eternal plan. And the context of this plan is that God has a plan of reconciling humanity to himself. It's also a plan, as we saw in verse 10 last week, it's of the church being how God makes his manifold wisdom known to heavenly beings. And so this reconciliation occurs Jew and Gentile through our Lord Jesus Christ. But why, as Paul's wanting to comfort them in his suffering, why would he talk about God's eternal plan? Well, perhaps you've had an experience like this. You're in an event you're talking with your friends, and you kind of find out, oh, Fred's got a party tonight. And it seems like everyone's invited to Fred's party, but you. And then someone goes, hey, what are you going to bring to Fred's party tonight? And you kind of mumble, well, I wasn't invited. And they go, oh, Fred, can Jeremy come? And then Fred goes, uh, yeah, sure, I guess. So I've been invited. But does Fred really want me at the party? You hear the Gentiles have been told God wants to save them, but does God really want the Gentiles, or is Jesus kind of that Gentile lover, and like, okay, well, Jesus died for them, so okay, come on, Gentiles, you can come to the party too. No, he's making clear God the Father has had a plan for all eternity for Jew and Gentile. So don't let the Jews act like, oh, you, yeah, maybe you can be saved, but you've got to keep the Mosaic Covenant. You've got to do all these things with it. No, God has had a plan for all eternity to welcome Jew and Gentile. And Paul now makes this clear. This plan to include Gentiles is to be full and equal members of God's people. That has been his eternal plan. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't an allowance since he couldn't think of good reasons not to let them in. And we can see this laid out in Scripture. Let me briefly walk through the Old Testament, how we see this. You're right after the fall of mankind in Genesis 3. God promises in Genesis 3.15 to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So God had a plan to crush Satan through the offspring of the woman and to bring blessing to the earth. 
We see the promise clear in Genesis 12.3, where God promises Abram, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Thus this promise is going to flow through Abram, and it will not just be for his people, the Jews, but all families of the earth will be blessed. That's why when God delivered Israel from Egypt, he then tells them, Exodus 19, 6, that you are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The whole kingdom was to serve as lights to the world to bring the Gentiles in. They were a conduit by which God wanted to reach the nations. God then expanded that promise, 2 Samuel 7, to King David, where he promised him, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So thus, there's the seed of Eve who will crush the serpent. There's one who's in the line of Abram who will be a blessing to all the world. And there's the descendant of David who will have an eternal kingdom. And then this gets expanded even more in Isaiah. Isaiah 42, this one will be a servant, a light to the nations. And through him, all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So one could draw from this, if they just read the Old Testament, that God has all these different agents coming in, all these different plans that he's working on, and he's going to eventually bring these all to pass. Yet the New Testament is clear that there are, there are different promises to the serpent, to Abram, to David, to the nation of Israel. They all find their fulfillment in Jesus. Thus Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1.20 saying, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. You know, since the prophet, you may remember Simeon the prophet, when the infant Jesus came, what did he say? He said, I praise God, this is the light of the nations has come. You're saying, look, in this infant is what Isaiah was talking about. Romans 16, 20, we'll talk about how the serpent, Satan, was crushed through Jesus, fulfilling Genesis 3, 15. Galatians 3.16, discussing the promises to Abram, says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring. And then he writes, who is Christ? Paul is saying, look, the promises to Abram, they're fulfilled in Christ. And when Jesus came into Jerusalem, what did they shout? Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So, the promise to Adam. The promise to Abraham. The promise to David. The promise to Israel. They all, we see, come in Christ. And the point Paul is making now in Ephesians is that God's plan for the Gentiles have been according to the eternal purpose that has been realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know, all God's promises in time that would happen here on earth had been planned in eternity. And this is not a new thought, because even the book of Ephesians opened that God chose us before the foundation of the world. Thus, if a Jew or Gentile trusts Christ, they can have access to God. And reflect, reflecting on this should bring us great comfort because it reminds us that God's plans have never been derailed. 
This last week I went to Graham, Texas and was part of a workshop on preaching and my brother and others planned to come. But as you can guess, many of them didn't make it. We make our plans, but God directs our steps. We make promises, but only God is the one who can fulfill every single promise. You know, we have to live with the recognition that it's only if the Lord wills that we will live and do this or that. God alone has had an eternal plan that has never been changed. He didn't have a litany of lawyers who read the fine print to go, okay, are we sure we can fulfill all the agreements on this? Do we need to add another little asterisk here? Well, in case of this or... No, one plan for all time, unchanged. And God's promises and plans always come true. Yeah, let you into the, I won't let you into all the dark recesses, but let you know a little bit of how my mind works sometimes. I kept thinking about this and thinking when I would think of it that, oh, this reminds me of all these stories, all these movies where there's this person who seemingly controls everything. They think they're doing something and then they finally go meet the person like, oh, I was in charge of that. I was in charge of that. Oh, you thought you were winning there? No, no, I was winning that too. So it made me think of Star Wars, the evil Emperor Palpatine. You may remember back at the good movies, Return of the Jedi. Luke's there before the Emperor. And he's, he's got the plan. We got the people on the moon. We're going to knock it out. Then we're going to take the Death Star out. And Palpatine mocks. He says, everything that has transpired has done so according to my design. Your friends up there on the moon are walking into a trap, as are the rebel fleet. It was I who allowed you to know the location of the shield generator. It is quite safe from your pitiful little band. An entire legion of my best troops awaits them. And the point is that the emperor seems to be controlling everything. Oh, you think you're in control of that? Eh, that was me. You thought you controlled that? No, that was me. Well, in a non-evil way, God actually does control everything. Everything that we think, oh, I'm going against God. No, that's part of God's plan. Oh, this is going wrong. No, that's part of God's plan. Every single thing is part of God's plan. God has for all eternity purposed to have a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He has purposed to love us by sending his son to die in our place so that we might be forgiven, restored, and made new. You know, as we sing, loved before the dawn of time. Chosen in my maker, hidden in my savior, I am his and he is mine, cherished for eternity. And knowing the wonderful plan and the purposes of God also helps us to realize that we can have boldness before God. We see that in verse 12. Verse 12 says, In whom, in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. If we drop that phrase in Christ, we miss the vital importance of what's being said about our boldness. You know, if we recognize who God is, then we shouldn't be bold. We should be like Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. You know, when we realize God is utterly perfect, He is holy, 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 He's righteous, He's the eternal God of the universe, then we're not going to come running in and then go, oh, what was I going to say? 
Why am I here? Hold on, hold on, God. I gotta, gotta think about why. No, he is God. And yet, Paul's point here is that God's eternal purpose was that in Christ we can have such boldness to come in. You know, this truth is beautifully explained in some of my favorite verses in the Bible. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. You can turn there if you'd like. We looked at it even in Sunday school. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. There it reads, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, in similar language to Ephesians, we are urged, let us then with confidence draw near. Now notice the present tense of this statement. Not, you will, future tense, be able to draw near in the future when you're in heaven. Okay, then when you're with God, you can draw near. It's not past tense. Well, you had been able to draw near, but then, you know, you've screwed up as a Christian. No, present tense. You can draw near. As well, there's an ongoing aspect to it. Draw near over and over again. You may have seen movies or watched and seen something that has a genie. And you rub the lamp and the genie comes out and you get three wishes. Once you use them up, they're gone. You don't have a finite number of times you can come before God. Well, there goes another one. Oh, you wasted that prayer. Nope. Ongoing. We can come to God. There's no limit to His resources. We're able to come over and over. And this would be an Stark contrast to what the Jews knew. Because when could they come in God's presence? Well, before this, once a year, and one person. That was it. Now, every person in Christ gets to come over and over again with confidence to the throne of grace. And that's the other thing we see here. And this present ongoing approach can be done with boldness. If you've read or are familiar with the story of Esther, you'll know how shocking this was because in Esther's day, you couldn't even go before the king without being requested. If the king didn't request you, when you come in, if he doesn't lower your, his scepter, you're going to die. And yet here, we're being given an open invitation. Come to the throne of grace. Come to receive mercy and find grace in your time of need. You know, as the saying goes, a friend in need is a friend indeed. You know, it's easy to be friends with someone who has the lake house and is always inviting people over. Well, then you're trying to text them, get to know them. The person who's always texting saying, hey, my dishwasher broke again. Hey, I'm moving. I'm not picking on any people who've had these issues. I'm just saying broadly, hey, I need some money. Hey, and all you ever get from them is, help me, help me, help me. Well, we kind of like, maybe I'd ought to reply to that text right away. Oh, you're going to Lake House? Sure, I'll reply right away. I'll be there this weekend. God calls us to come 
in our time of need. He is a true friend who is for us in our strength. And here he's calling us in our weakness to come. And not just to come, but to come with confidence and boldness. Well, why can we have such boldness? Well, it's because it says in verses 14 and 15, He is our great high priest. He's not one who can't sympathize, but he can sympathize with our weaknesses, verse 15 says, because he was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. In other words, Jesus was faithful and stood the test. Flip back to Ephesians 3, for we see that same idea in these verses. Ephesians 3, verse 12, it reads, In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Now, you may have a footnote, you may have a note, might not in your Bible, but the faith in him is a good way to translate it. It's a fine way, and you can translate it like that, because other passages have a similar idea. And we see that idea through the New Testament, that it's our faith in Christ that gives us boldness. And yet, if you're reading it in the Greek, the more natural reading would actually be through the faith of him. Or in other words, through his faithfulness, we have boldness. That's the more natural, and neither one is theologically wrong, and grammatically, you can look at other passages that have both. But I think here, it's really trying to give the emphasis, our confidence to come before God is His, Jesus' faithfulness. Now, this may seem like a minor point, but often Christians' focus shift from trusting in Christ to trusting in their trust. They begin wondering, have I really believed enough? Have I surrendered enough? Is my faith deep enough? And on and on. And they subtly, subtly turn from trusting Christ to trusting their trust, to the level or depth of their faith. And they've made the response to the gospel the object of the gospel. And in contrast to that, the gospel declares it doesn't matter the degree or depth of your faith, but rather the object of your faith that matters. I enjoy hiking. I know many of you do as well. Imagine you're hiking through the Rocky Mountains and you're going along and you come across a stream and you stop and you rest and you look down and you go, and you pick up this little rock and you go, I think that's gold. And then you bend down and you kind of move the mud and you find another piece. And then all of a sudden, you're down on your hands and knees. You're digging through the water, and you just keep finding piece after piece. And before long, you've forgotten about, you've forgotten about your hike. You're just madly digging through the water, and you fill your backpack up, and you go back down that hill. Your knees are tired. Your hands have dirt all in them, and you got a backpack so heavy, but you know what? You don't care. You got gold. So you go, and you go to sell it, and you turn it in. The guy goes, well, that's pyrite. Fool's gold. And you go, oh. Well, did it matter how much faith you had in it being gold? Did the amount of effort you put towards it and all the dedication matter one bit? Not at all. Your faith in it didn't change what it was. Now imagine on the flip side, you saw it and you're like, I don't know if that's gold. You're like, well, I'll just take it. And you threw it in. You saw another one and, okay, I'll take that one. And you got a few, and you finish your hike, and you do everything. And then you go, you know, I'll just go see. And you go, and you turn, and the guy goes, that's worth $5,000. Well, 
Well, did your lack of faith in the gold make it less valuable? Well, no, because what matters is not how much trust you have in it, but what it is. And Jesus' faithfulness was perfect, 100%. So you can come to God knowing, you know what? I'm not perfect, but he was. His righteousness is what gives me boldness, confidence to come to your, not throne of judgment, your throne of grace. And so my confidence before God is not on the strength of my faith, but on the object of my faith, Jesus, the perfect righteous one. John Piper once gave some words that really drove this home for me, so let me share them with you. He's talking about how we can boldly approach the throne because Jesus was faithful when tempted, and then he gave all these examples. He was faithful when he was tempted to steal, to help his poor mother when his father died. He was faithful when he was tempted to covet all the nice things that Zacchaeus owned, and to dishonor his parents when they were more strict than others, and to take revenge when he was wrongly accused, and to lust when Mary wiped his feet with her hair, and to pout with self-pity when his disciples fell asleep in his last hour of trial. And to murmur at God when John the Baptist died at the whim of a dancing girl. And to gloat over his accusers when they couldn't answer his questions. Jesus knows the battle. He fought it all the way to the end and he defeated the monster every time. Thus as we sang earlier, bold I approach the eternal throne. And claim the crown through Christ my own. That's how we claim the crown, not through... Well, I was a really good person. I was a pastor. You know, if you're a pastor, then you're like a really good Christian. Not true. In Christ alone is our confidence before God. Not in any service we do for God. Not in any religious duty. Christ alone is how we boldly approach. So do you come with boldness to the throne of grace? Or does your sin cause your eyes to drop? afraid, ashamed to look into others' eyes, even the eyes of God. You feel broken, worthless, and unworthy of love. God knows all the sins that you've committed, that you are committing, and that will commit, and He still beckons you to come boldly to His gracious throne. And this amazing truth should never lead to flippancy as though sin doesn't matter, God is not saying that sin is no longer a concern. Rather, God is saying that in Christ, we can confess and be totally forgiven. And when we come to know God's eternal plan and the boldness we have before Him, before His throne due to Jesus, then that leads us even to be able to have joy in our suffering. Our third and final point, Ephesians 3.13. So I ask you, not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. So Paul begins with, so, an inference, an extrapolation of what he's just said, that applies to his current condition. You're basically saying, look, Ephesians, God has an eternal plan to bring you into fellowship with him through Jesus Christ. You get to come before the God of the universe, even though you were dead in your sins. And you get to come with boldness. It's my privilege, I, Paul, to be an ambassador of you for this message. So don't get upset that I'm in prison for this message. In fact, it's for your glory that I'm doing this. Or in other words, Paul can rejoice because he's utterly convinced of the reality 
of the gospel. You know, we're often like the centurion. I believe, help my unbelief. You know, our view of God and the truthfulness of his word is often small. Yet Paul has such a God-centered view of the world that he can see all things, even the chains on his hands, as part of God's working. Thus, Paul considers, why be discouraged? Well, why do I get discouraged? Well, things aren't going according to my plans. My plans get thwarted, eradicated, halted, and I know, or at least arrogantly think I know, what's best for me in God's kingdom. And when the world shrinks down to my understanding and my perspective, then this world is very, very discouraging and frustrating. Now we should briefly pause and say we're having a whole Sunday school series on suffering. So there's more that could be said. In fact, Paul's joy is not all that the scriptures say. Job, the book of Lamentation, the Psalms of Lament, even Jesus in the garden cried out in their suffering. This while we should rejoice, that must also fit with cries of agony. Yet the point here, and in many other passages, is that there can be joy even in suffering. Perhaps this joyful agony, if such a phrase can be used, is pictured well by Richard Wormbrand, the Romanian pastor who was imprisoned by Soviet Russia for preaching the gospel. In his book, Tortured for Christ, Wormbrand writes of how it was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. So he says, a number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching, so we accept their terms. It was a deal. We preached, and they beat us. We were happy preaching, they were happy beating us, so we were all happy. So, is he saying that while the guards were literally raining blows down on him, that he was just smiling? No. I think he was probably screaming. And yet, even in his screams, he knew there was something worth suffering for. You know, what caused Wormbrand or Paul, Paul's here in prison as well, to rejoice in their sufferings is that they believe what they've been enslaved for and punished for was truly valuable. More valuable than the alternatives. You know, we all willingly make sacrifices and suffer for what we find valuable. You know, the musician sacrifices hours of time to hone their skill. Those who cherish their nation's freedoms give up their life to go and serve to defend those freedoms. Those who love their family will drive hours to see them and give up vacation time to be with them. The car lover devotes their Saturday to vacuuming it out, polishing, making sure it's just right. And we could go on and on for every single person reveals what they think is truly valuable by what they're willing to sacrifice for. And when someone points out all their sacrifices, what do they say? It's no big deal. I love it. It's not a sacrifice to them. So where does your free time, free money, free energy go? Is it all devoted to self-focused goals and ends? Paul is making clear that his suffering is for them and their glory. In other words, Paul has a God-shaped, other-person vision of this world. That life is about more than just happiness in this moment. 
that a meaningful existence is more than just checking off all the items on the bucket list before you die. Remember, Paul had been the cream of the crop of the Pharisees. He had been on a career trajectory that was going to take him to the top of his career path. And what did he say when he came to know Christ? He said, all of that is rubbish. He was willing to sacrifice all that because he's knowing and serving Christ. He knows God's eternal plan in Christ. And so he knows that the sufferings of this present time, they're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That this light momentary affliction was preparing for him an eternal weight of glory far beyond any comparison to what on earth. However, the Ephesian Gentiles, they won't come to know this eternal glory if Paul will not fight against the legalism that says only Jews will be saved. Thus Paul willingly preached to and for the Gentiles, even though this led to beatings and chains. And he did not then reconsider and pine, oh man, why am I, I could just stop this message, get back on that Pharisee track and phew, no prisons, then I'm being invited to all the banquets. I'm given the important speeches. I'm the one who everyone wants to talk to, not beat up. But he didn't do that. He rejoiced in his sufferings, and he calls for them to not lose heart either. So friends, the sufferings of this life can be devastating and sometimes downright debilitating. Yet Paul reminds us that knowing God's plan in Christ shines light on our sufferings. If we can savor God's eternal love for us, if we can grasp the confidence and boldness that Christ gives us to come before God, then we can find hope even in our suffering. So may God give us eyes to know God's plan for us in Christ so we can see successes and sufferings with faith-filled eyes. Let's pray. Lord, what incredible thoughts we've considered this morning. That before the first molecule existed, before there was any light, before any human, you made a plan. You set your love on us. And so we cling to you, our Father, our Savior, our friend. And so, Lord, we do go through deep suffering in this world deep agonies, and sometimes we don't get to choose them like Paul chose his, and yet we ask, I ask, that this morning you would help us to see all of those sorrows in the light of your plan for us and your love for us in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.